0: Well, this morning, uh, we don't really have anywhere particularly to turn to right yet, but uh, we will turn to a lot of places before we get through. Um, If you were here last week, your brain's probably still full. You're probably wondering, what happened? Uh, We threw lots of information at you last week, and the purpose of last week was just to show you the structure of the Old Testament and the general content of the Old Testament and how it's all laid out and the chronology of it. And so hopefully um, you learned something last week, maybe that, uh, that I shouldn't try and teach you that much on Sunday morning. Many, though, have um, decided to memorize the books of the Old Testament and many have come up and said, I've almost got that chart memorized, I'm memorizing the whole chart and I've almost got it done. And that will really help you and of those of you who are trying to do that, I encourage you to keep trying to remember that chart and get it in your head because once you have a chronology of the Old Testament, it really helps you understand the content of the books. And this morning we want to begin to look at some Old Testament misconceptions. A lot of times people have these misconceptions, false perceptions about the Old Testament, and it hinders them from really getting a blessing out of reading those Old Testament books. You know, they, you talk with somebody and you, you talk to them about some text in the Old Testament and they say, oh, well, that's Old Testament. Well, What's that? I mean, what does that mean? That's Old Testament. And implied in that statement is is that the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. But is that the case? The Old Testament, for many, is like sitting down in front of a computer for the first time. You remember when you did it, when you were trying to move the mouse by tilting your body? Somebody says, this is the mouse, and you grab it, and said, you move the mouse around to get the pointer around, so you're kind of doing like this. No, the mouse moves, not you. Where you know the computer is powerful, and you know it does lots of things, but you have no idea what to do with it. It just doesn't work for you. And that's how many people see the Old Testament. They understand, oh, there's a lot of wonderful things in the Old Testament, I just wish I knew what to do with it. I'm sure it's the word of God, but I don't really know what that means for me as a New Testament believer. I know I'm not under law, I'm under grace, whatever that means. And some of you have been Christians for many years, yet you've never really stopped and asked yourself some hard questions, questions that you need to ask and get answers to. Some of you have read the Old Testament fairly regularly because you know you're supposed to read your Bible, but you don't really have a firm grasp on what parts of the Old Testament are really for you and that you must really obey, or is it just a storybook, or what is the purpose of the Old Testament? And what I want to do this morning, first and foremost, is to place a huge burden on you. I'm going to crush you with a burden. And then in the weeks to come, I want to slowly take it off and rescue you from it. But what I want to do is I want to ask you some questions. Questions that many of you have probably never even thought of, never even pondered, and you never knew that you didn't know until this morning. It's going to become clear that there are many things you don't know. And so, I am going to basically attempt to reveal your ignorance. And this is going to be a burden to some of you because many of you want answers right now. And I'm not going to give them to you all at once. But let me just ask you some questions. And don't take notes because it will kill you if you do this. Just listen. Just listen. You know, we come to the Old Testament, we all have one in our Bibles, and we know that, you know, it's the Word of God. And so, let me ask you some questions, some critical questions. If you do not read the Old Testament, question number one, if you don't read the Old Testament, could you have a correct understanding of sin, sacrifice, the atonement, the new covenant, the Messiah, his identity, the future role, that he will play in the kingdom, why he had to die on the cross, redemption, creation, etc.? Secondly, do you think that the New Testament preachers should spend more time preaching out of the New Testament than the Old? Why? Do you think both Testaments should be given equal time? Why? Is one Testament more important than the other? Why? For instance, since the Old Testament is four times bigger than the New Testament, should we spend three-fourths of our time preaching from the Old and one-fourth preaching from the New? Third, does the Old Testament apply to Christians? If so, what parts? How do you know what parts you have to obey and which ones you do not have to obey? Then if you think the Old Testament doesn't apply, then why not get rid of it? Four, Let's say you are teaching about abortion. And if you were to teach about abortion and to teach why abortion is ethically wrong, you would take almost all of your information from the Old Testament because the Old Testament is what really clearly refutes abortion. What allows you to do that? how can you refute abortion using old testament using the old testament and yet not obey all the rest of the old testament and who says you can pick and choose certain portions of the old testament to justify your ethics but not submit to the entire thing and how do you pick and choose what text to support your ethics and which ones to reject fifth do the 10 commandments still apply what about the fourth commandment? To keep the Sabbath. If the Ten Commandments don't apply, does that mean we can worship idols, take the Lord's name in vain, murder, steal, commit adultery, covet? Six, if the entire law is an expression of the Ten Commandments, why do we have to obey the Ten or maybe the Nine but not all of the examples and expressions of the ten or the nine. Seven. The New Testament says that Christ is the end of the law. The New Testament says Christ abolished the law with all its commandments and ordinances. And the New Testament says we are not under law, but under grace. What do texts like this mean in their context? Do they teach us that we can do anything we want and live lawless lives? If not, are we under law? If so, which law? The law of Moses? If not the law of Moses, what law? What are the commandments of that law? Where do we find that law? How does that law differ from the Old Testament, or does it? Eight. Does the Old Testament contradict the New? If so then how could it be written by God, a single author? If not, then how come we don't treat both the Old Testament and the New Testament as a unified whole, inspired by God? Nine. Does the New Testament interpret the Old? Or, does the Old Testament interpret the New? Or, do they interpret each other at times... Or is each text to be interpreted within its own context? If you think the New Testament interprets the Old, then does that mean the Old Testament saints had no way of understanding the Old Testament because they did not have the New? Now, at this time, you're thinking to yourself, you you probably feel like Job. When God says, Job, why don't you sit down and I'll ask you some questions and you instruct me. But this is just a half of it. Number 11. Should we base our doctrines on the entire Bible, or just the New Testament, or some of the Old Testament and some of the New Testament, or some of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament? Twelve, is the God of the Old Testament a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament a God of grace? Or is He the same God in both Testaments? And if so, why did He change what He requires of us in the New Testament? Or did He? How can you reconcile the differences in the way God acts between the Old Testament and the New Testament? I mean, He doesn't do things like open the earth up and swallow people anymore who sin. He doesn't devour them with fire so their ashes have to be carried outside the camp. Has God changed in the New Testament? And if not, why is there a difference in the way He acts? Or is there? 13. Did the Old Testament believers get saved in the New Testament the same way the New Testament believers get saved? Or were Old Testament believers saved by works and New Testament believers saved by grace? How exactly were Old Testament believers saved anyways? 14. What role did the Holy Spirit play in the lives of Old Testament saints? As compared to New Testament saints, did the Old Testament saints have the help of the Holy Spirit to draw them to salvation, like us? Or did those who do not seek God, seek God on their own? And if the Holy Spirit did draw them and did help them to be saved, then did the Holy Spirit permanently stay with them to help them obey God? Or were they abandoned to live the rest of their lives in the flesh? Which the New Testament says, you can't please God in the flesh. Fifteen. Most would agree that we need to keep the commandments. But what commandments? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Which ones are those? Where do you find them? Which ones are they? And how do you know? Sixteen. Did the church exist in the Old Testament? If not, then what parts of the covenants to Israel apply to the church? Are the covenants given to Israel just for Israel or for Israel and the church? And which parts are for the church and how do we know and why? 17. How did the believers in the Old Testament get forgiveness of sins? Or did they? How did they receive forgiveness if Christ had not died yet? Did they receive forgiveness through sacrifice If they did, then why did Christ have to die? If they did not, then why did they kill all those animals? 18. If the Old Testament is not binding on Christians, then why did Jesus and the New Testament authors constantly quote the Old Testament as an authoritative source to support New Testament truth for the church? 19. What was the object of faith for Old Testament believers? For instance, if Adam or Noah or Abraham or Moses was going to share the gospel with somebody so they could be saved, what would that gospel be? And what would they tell them to do or believe in so they could be saved? 20. When Paul says things like, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified before God, does he mean that... Works never can save a people because by works you can't be saved. Or does he mean you could be saved by works, but since no one obeys, no one can be saved by works. The New Testament tells us, 21, that we are to live by the law of Christ or the law of liberty. What is that? Are those two things the same thing or two different things? How do you live by the law of Christ? And how does that differ from the Old Testament law or does it? Now listen carefully to this one, last one. Are you to obey only those things in the Old Testament that are repeated in the New And the logical implication of that is if you obey, if you only need to obey those parts are repeated in the new, then you don't need the old because the new has everything you need. Or are you to obey all the Old Testament except that which is explicitly or implicitly abrogated in the new or done away with or nullified in the new? Or are you to just obey in principle? Everything in the Old Testament and New Testament, or obey everything in the New Testament and only principle in the Old Testament. Now, in J.R. Tolkien's fantasy fiction trilogy, Lord of the Rings, which has recently been made into a movie series, the main character, Frodo Baggins, discovers that an apparently harmless ring that is given to him is the one ring of power that it that the Dark Lord is trying to get a hold of it, and if he does get a hold of it, it will destroy the earth. And after being chased by the evil minions of the Dark Lord, he realizes the fate of the world is in his hands, and feeling the weight of responsibility, Frodo says, I wish this ring had never come to me. And some of you are sitting out there, and you're thinking, I wish you had never asked me these questions. (laughs) I wish you had kept me ignorant because then I could just go on content in my ignorance and I wouldn't be burdened by what I don't know now. It is a responsibility of yours to get answers to these questions. Because once the question is brought up, You need to know what you believe about it and why. But be of good courage. The reason we are taking time to do this Old Testament series is to answer these questions and others like them for you and show you from the scriptures so that you can develop in your mind an understanding of the Old Testament and how the Old Testament applies or if it does to you as a believer in the New Testament era. And you should, like Frodo Baggins, feel the weight of responsibility because 77% of your Bible is weighed in the balances right now. 77% of your Bible is now in the balances and depending on how you answer the questions we have asked, will determine what you do with three-fourths of the Bible for the rest of your life. So it is a huge issue. And I do admit that sometimes ignorance is bliss. And that it's easier to live your life as a Christian just reading the Old Testament, the parts you like, the parts you don't like, ignoring it, using the parts you want to to support whatever you want to support. And then when somebody says something you don't like, you just say, that's Old Testament. Old Testament. Because that deals with it, you hope. Unless you do that to me. Then I always tell people, what do you mean by that? And that's when their eyes go sideways. (laughs) God wants you to know the significance and the purpose and application of the Old Testament. He wants you to accurately handle the Old Testament because it is part of the word of truth. He wants you to know its significance and purpose in your life. And it is Satan who would prefer that you stay ignorant and not answer these questions. So because of the enormity of this subject, of course, I cannot answer all of these questions at one time. I would like to. And so I tell you that, so do not run up to me after the service and try and get the answers. You will have to wait like everybody else. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to address this like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, when you put a jigsaw puzzle together, the first pieces you put in together are the easy pieces, the edge pieces. They're all straight. Then you look and you get all the easily defined shapes in the picture and you put all those together. Then you have all the fall leaves and the grass, you know, which all looks the same, the hard parts, and you try and put those together. That is the approach we are going to take. First, we will put the easy things to understand together. Then we will move progressively towards harder and harder things. Now, if you're going to be gone a couple weeks, you better get the tape. Because I cannot go back and say everything I did. Every time we continue on. So that is the approach. Now, I will purposely, as I teach through certain Concepts, especially easier parts like this morning, ignore harder parts. And I don't want you to be out there saying, but, 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 but. Just be patient. We will get to them. But what I want you to do is understand what is crystal clear first before we look at what is hard to understand. You don't take your doctrine and base it upon the hard to understand, you base it upon the easy first. And then you make sure that whatever those hard texts mean, they don't contradict the easy texts. And so the first misconception that we want to look at is this. There is a misconception out there that Christians don't need the Old Testament because it has, quote, been done away with, whatever that means. So turn to Matthew 5. And we'll begin to answer this question this morning. This is a big one. And then, in the weeks to come, we will unravel many of the others. The Old Testament has been done away with. Turn to Matthew 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is sitting there in front of a huge crowd of people that has gathered to hear Him teach. And He starts off in the beginning of verses 3 through 12, and He gives them the Beatitudes, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And then, He explains things. Through, by, by giving in some word pictures what it means to be a believer in God living in the world, how you are to let your light so shine among, uh, among men. And then he says this in verse 17 through 19. "Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, and so teaches others, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them He shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first thing Jesus says here is, Do not think I came to abolish the law. Now, why does he even bother saying that? I mean, he's given some Beatitudes and said, You know, give a few word pictures about living for the glory of God in the world. And why does he start off saying, Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets? Well, it's because of what he's going to say. What he is going to do in the following context is bring to light the true intent of the law of God. And it is going to be so radically different from what the people have been taught by the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, that. Jesus knows they are going to accuse Him of actually altering the law or doing away with it and giving a new one. And so what He's doing is He's doing a preemptive strike on their mind to let them know that He did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. For instance, in verse 20, He is going to shock them stiff when He tells them Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you are not going to make it to heaven. And this is just going to blow them away. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were religious fanatics and held to the law in a meticulous way. Remember what Paul said? That according to the law, when he was a Pharisee, he was found what? blameless and so what's happening here is Jesus is going to expose to them the meaning of the law in a way they have never been taught but the original intent of it he's going to make a series of statements such as you have heard it said but I tell you and they're gonna go whoa for instance, look at Matthew 5, 27. And we'll just use this as just one of the case studies. It could go all the way through here. You, he says it over and over again. This little formula. Matthew 5:27. You have heard it said, Do not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Did Jesus change the seventh commandment here? No. You see, there are some presuppositions in the Ten Commandments which a lot of people don't understand, and they didn't understand, and many Christians don't understand. Whenever God gives you a do or a don't, there are some presuppositions there, and one is is that you are a lover of God, a believer. Those commandments in the Old Testament came after God established a covenant with his people and said, will you be my people and let me be your God? And they said, yes. And so God gave them the commandments so that they could express their love to God. So, implied, first of all, is that these things were written to believers so that they, out of love and devotion to God, could honor Him. Secondly, each commandment does not only forbid the specific full-blown sin, like adultery, but it forbids every degree of sin leading up to that sin. That is why Jesus says, if you look at a woman and lust, you have already committed adultery. Immoral thoughts, lustful passions are adultery in the bud. And when God gave the command, do not commit adultery, he didn't want us to think, Well, as long as I don't do the act, I'm fine. Even if I have continual immoral thoughts and look at pornography and do all sorts of things like that, that's okay as long as I don't do the end product. No. God wants you to abstain from every degree of immoral thoughts and lusts and fantasies because those things lead to the full-blown act. Not only that, but each command also implies that you would do the opposite of it. So if it is a negative command, you do the opposite, and if it's a a positive command, you do the negative. In this case, you are not only to abstain from every form of lust and immoral thoughts and fantasies and passions but you are to practice the positive which is to maintain and pursue every form and degree of purity and that's how all the laws are to be understood and in the Sermon on the Mount this is what Jesus is doing because the Pharisees kept the letter of the law but not from a right heart and they did not keep all the degrees And the opposite. And that's what he's doing here. So he says, I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets. That's why he makes that statement. Now the second thing is, he says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now what does that mean? What does it mean that he fulfills the law? Well, the word basically means to carry out to the full or to perfect or to complete. Now, in some cases, it means to bring to an end through completion. For instance, in November, I get to go serve in jury duty. And so I have this jury duty that I have to serve on. Now, I go and I serve for the week and go on a trial. After I complete my time of service, it has come to an end. So sometimes when you you see the word fulfill, the same word in the New Testament, it's used to obey and complete so as to bring to an end, like a term of jury service. Other times, it means to obey completely or do completely or perfect something but not do away with it. Now, some people want to look at this and say, well, what this means is Jesus fulfilled it. Therefore, it's done away with. And that's where this often comes from. But I do not believe that Jesus is saying that he came to fulfill it to do away with it. And there are some reasons. I want to give you what I think he's first saying, and then we'll go back and try and support that. First, I think Jesus fulfilled the law by obeying it perfectly. In other words, when he lived this on this world, he was not like the Pharisees who kept the letter of the law, but not from a godly heart and not all the degrees and not the flip side. He did all of that perfectly. So he fulfilled the law in that respect. Second, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets by doing or completing what was prophesied that the Messiah would do when he would come the first time. In other words, the Law and the Prophets had all these prophecies about Jesus' first coming, and when He came, He fulfilled all of those first coming prophecies. In that way, Jesus fulfilled the Law. Now, why is it not best to think that Jesus came to fulfill the Law in order to bring it to an end? This is where you need to keep reading. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, think about this. Have all the prophecies of the Old Testament been accomplished about the second coming, about the kingdom, about New Jerusalem, about the restoration of Israel? No, Have you gone outside lately? Heaven and earth is still there. And what does this mean? It means not one jot or tittle, not one little Hebrew accent mark has passed away from the law because it has not all been accomplished. That is interesting. There is another reason why I don't think Jesus was saying, I have come to fulfill, to do away with the law, because he says, I did not come to abolish it. That would make no sense. I did not come to abolish it, but to abolish it. And also, it would be very difficult to explain verse 19, which says, look there, "'Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments "'and teaches others to do the same "'shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. "'But whoever keeps and teaches them, "'he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven.'" Jesus not only states the enduring nature of the law, but puts the responsibility of obeying the law on his hearers and the responsibility of teaching others to do the same, And a warning against those who would teach people to go against it. But some of you out there are thinking to yourself, But Jack, Jack, (laughs) Jesus was living in the Old Testament era. And if you're thinking that, good for you. That is something good to think about. Because he was living in the Old Testament era. He was under the law. And the church had not started yet. He had not died. He had not been buried or risen again, but even if he's in the Old Testament era, heaven and earth have not passed away. All has not been accomplished and so every jot and tittle remains. Just make sure you have that in your mind. Come to grips with those points. Now, Jesus dies He's buried. He raises, is raised again on the third day. The church is born in Acts 2. And then the book of Acts records the transition from Judaism to Christianity. And you would think that if the law had been done away with, then it would be done away with. But what do we see happening in the book of Acts? Constant reference to the Old Testament. In Acts, if you turn there, you will see in Acts chapter 3, verses 22, Deuteronomy 18, 15 quoted. And if you were to go over to Acts 4.11, you'd see Psalm 118.22 quoted. And if you were to go to Acts 4.24, you'd see Exodus 20.11 quoted. And if you went to Acts... 4, 25, and 26, you'd see Psalm 2, 1 and 2 quoted. And if you were to go, let's say, Acts 7, just turn there, look through Stephen's sermon, it's nothing but a string of Old Testament quotes. That does not sound like done away with to me. According to the United Bible Society's third edition of the Nestle Island Greek text, there are some 380 Old Testament quotes quotations in the New, and over 2,300 Old Testament allusions. Now, how could you understand the New Testament, which constantly refers to the Old Testament and alludes to the Old Testament, if you don't first understand the Old Testament? It would be like trying to understand a book by reading its last chapter. You could find out who did it, but you wouldn't know who who was. You can find out who was killed, but you don't know who they are either. You wouldn't know the inspector. You wouldn't know anything. And that's what happens to a lot of people in the church. They come to the New Testament, they read the New Testament, and they have all these theological flaws and misunderstandings and misperceptions because they can't quite, they don't know. They've never read the front of the book. And so they can't understand the back of the book because the Old Testament oftentimes interprets the new and helps us understand the new. Now turn to Romans 15.4. Let's get out of the transition and let's just get into the church, to letters to the church to Romans chapter 15. Paul in chapter 15 is speaking about pleasing our neighbor in the near context and after quoting an Old Testament text in verse 3 of Romans 15, he then says this in Romans fifteen four. If you have a little pen, you can do some highlighting here if you like to defile your Bible. For whatever, you could underline that, was written in earlier times. You write in the margin, Old Testament. Was written for our instruction. You could just write of our, me. That through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. Now let me ask you this. Do you need instruction from God? Do you need perseverance? Do you need encouragement? Do you need hope? Then you need the Old Testament. Because whatever was written in earlier times gives us those things. Keep that in your mental file. Because we're going to refer to this quickly in the weeks to come. I want you to have these things stuck in your mind. The Old Testament is for my instruction, perseverance, encouragement, and hope. Okay? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Go a little bit deeper into the New Testament. Now, let me just read verses 1 through 13 of 1 Corinthians 10. And then we'll make a few observations Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all... Under the cloud And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, and it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us Act immorally as some of them did and 23 thousands fell in one day nor let us try the lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer now these things happen to them as example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall no temptation has overcome you but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able but with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you will will be able to endure it. Now, you look at this right here, and you see what's going on. Paul is referencing many things in the Old Testament. And as he references things in the Old Testament to the New Testament church at Corinth, he is saying, don't be like these people in the Old Testament. And look at verse 6, and notice what he says. Now, these things, what things, these Old Testament events that I am referring to, happened in the Old Testament, as examples for us, New Testament believers, so that we, New Testament believers, would not crave evil things as they also craved. Look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them, I mean, they must have been slow, as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Just in case you're wondering, who exactly are these Old Testament stories for? But notice here that Paul is saying that whatever was written in earlier times, all of these things that happened, these examples in the Old Testament of believers sinning, Israel, God's people sinning against God, happened for you, to instruct you and to teach you how to avoid the same mistakes that they fell into, and to escape the judgment they did not escape from. A lot of times we've memorized verse 13, No temptation has overcome you, but such is common to man, blah, 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 blah. God it will provide a way of escape. But what we don't do is we don't memorize that verse in its context, and the context of that verse is this. You need to learn The Old Testament, so you can avoid the same mistakes as they did, that is, in the context, how God provides the way of escape. He gives you revelation and examples of what not to do. Now, you could also say that He gives you examples of things to do, right? I mean, you look at Hebrews 11 and you see all of those people who acted in great faith and they are positive examples. So the Old Testament is a great example book for us because it tells us things we should do and things we should not do. It instructs us in the way of righteousness by example. Now that to me does not sound like something that is done away with. You see, there are two primary ways of learning. You can learn by wisdom or you can learn by experience. You could come over to my house. I could say, you know what? I've got this torch and I've been under my house before and the torch has fall over and has burnt my hand and it hurts. You can either learn from wisdom or I can say, or if you'd like, you can learn from experience. Let me hold the torch up to your hand and it will burn you. And you can find out. And what's amazing is many people want to learn by experience, but it's not the best way. Wisdom is always better. Your parents say, keep your hand away from the crack of the car door, because if your fingers get slammed in there, it will really hurt. Now, what is the best way to learn? From the wisdom of your parents or from experience? You see, the Bible is full of wisdom. We have people here who have lived long lives, many seniors, and they have things they can teach you because they've existed for so long. They can tell you, oh, don't do that. I did that in 51. (laughs) And you know what? I did it again in 63. and I did it again in 78 and 84 and 92. And I finally learned this is not the right thing. Don't do that. You can believe them. And that is why in the Proverbs, it cries out for you to listen and gain wisdom from the word of God. Wisdom stands at the street corner and she shouts out saying, Come, all you are who are naive, and I will give you understanding. You can either come to the word of God or learn by experience. Wisdom is always better. Learn by someone else's experience and knowledge. It will save you great pain and anguish. But some of us are so stubborn, God teaches us by experience. Because we won't learn. I pray frequently, Lord, help me to learn through wisdom. Help me to learn through wisdom. I mean, I don't want to, you know, go through the car slamming and the hand burning. But sometimes you have to do that because you're too stubborn to just look and believe the word of God. And so, the Old Testament is a great source of wisdom for you. You can say, look how God promised this, and look how they disobeyed, and look how they suffered. Hey, maybe I should obey. Finally, turn to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. This is Paul's last book that he wrote to Timothy. And the last book that he wrote to anybody... This is his last will and testament, so to speak, to the church. In this book, he says many of the same things he says in 1 Timothy, but condenses them down, and he hammers away on these things. Teach the word, preach the word, model the word in the church. When you assemble together, teach, preach, model. Those are the things that constantly come up all the way through this book. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he speaks of what it will be like in the last days and how men will just be wicked. Rebellious sinners. He says men will be lovers of self. Verse 2, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Those are good verses to memorize. And you have all those things there. And he explains this is what it's going to be like in the last day. And in it isn't it. It's that way, isn't it? And then he goes on to explain um, how these people, some are into knowledge but they never come to the knowledge of truth. He talks about Janus and Jambres who oppose Moses, uh, the magicians there and men of depraved mind. And he talks about those who don't make further progress and their folly becomes evident to all. And then in verse 10, um, he says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, and perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, in which he, and he gives examples. Indeed, he says, verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse 13, he says, But evil imposters and cell phones will proceed from bad to worse. <laughs> and will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, what's ironic is, in the first service, someone's cell phone rang at that very same place. So, it is a message from God. So, the whole end times are characterized by people who are getting more and more wicked, deceiving others, and being deceived themselves. Now, having made a crystal clear picture of the character of end times humanity he then says this in verse 14 you however continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them i think right here paul is talking about himself primarily as an apostle paul Took Timothy along, taught him things, taught him about the church. You know, he was the posse, he was receiving direct revelation from God. He wrote most of the New Testament. And Paul, as he was doing this, taught Timothy many things. You could also say, Paul or Timothy also learned things from his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. If you go to chapter 1, you will learn that they taught him things also from, of course, the Old Testament... But in addition to that, notice what he says in verse 15. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Now, what was that? When Timothy was a child, how much of the New Testament was written? None. What are the sacred writings that Paul is referring to in this text? The Old Testament. And notice what he says about the Old Testament scriptures. He says, which are the Old Testament scriptures able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus? You go to Acts, and what does Paul use to win the Jews to Christ? The Old Testament. What does Peter use? The Old Testament. What did Stephen use? The Old Testament. He reasoned with them from the law and the prophets. Then look at verse 16, which most people almost always think is referring to what? The New Testament, but in the near preceding context, and it does refer to it in a general way, but in this text, he's specifically speaking of the sacred writings which you have known from childhood, which gave you wisdom leading to salvation. All Scripture, specifically the Old Testament, is inspired by God. And profitable for teaching, reproof, or correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, you look at that, and you say, really? Yeah, the Old Testament can lead you to salvation. The Old Testament can not only do that, it wants to teach you. The Old Testament wants to reprove you. The Old Testament wants to correct you. The Old Testament wants to train you in righteousness so that you can be equipped, thoroughly furnished, literally rigged out like a ship for every good work. That's what the Old Testament is good for. Other than that, it's not important. (laughs) Now, think about this. Think about what we've learned this morning from very clear and easy to understand texts. One, the Old Testament is not abolished. Two, it will not pass away until all is accomplished. Three, it is for your instruction. Four, it will give you perseverance. Five, it will give you encouragement. Six, it will give you hope. Seven, it contains examples of what to do and what not to do to help you avoid sin. Eight, it gives you wisdom leading to salvation in Christ. Nine, it teaches you. Ten, it reproves you. Eleven, it corrects you. Twelve, it trains you in righteousness so you can obey God in every area of your life. Now, you might say, so what am I supposed to do with all this? What about all the other questions? Well, we're going to get there in the weeks to come. But the purpose of this morning was just to hopefully so thoroughly annihilate the Old Testament has been done away with that we've dusted off the place where it stood. There's nothing left there. Banish the thought that you only need one quarter of your Bible. You need the whole thing. And you may not know how to get into the Old Testament and extract out of it what you need, but you need the whole thing. I hope you come away with that. And what can you do about it? Well, make sure you read the Old Testament. Even the minor prophets. Even Jeremiah and Ezekiel with the wheels within the wheels and the platform and the eyes all around and the four beasts with heads looking in each direction moving like lightning. Everything. Study it. Meditate on it. Learn from the Old Testament. And in the weeks to come we will begin to deal with more misconceptions and then we'll look at the law and we'll look at grace and we'll try and get it all put together in an easy-to-understand statement so that you can know why you have an Old Testament and what to do with it. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for being able to just come to your Word and see that the Old Testament is still relevant and important for us to know as New Testament believers. And Father, we have not answered all the questions that we asked at the beginning, but they were good questions. They make our mind think and ponder Father, I pray that you would give me wisdom as I sort through all of this information and try and package it in a simple way that people can understand it. Father, we want to be a church that believes in, understands, and applies whatever in your word we are to believe and understand and apply. Father, I pray we would be Christians of the whole Bible, not just part of it. That we wouldn't just be believers uh, who knew a little bit about the old and lots of the new, but that we would know the whole canon of scripture, and Father, I just pray for those today who who are here and are thinking, man, this is this is heavy stuff, and I just pray that you would give them patience, that you would give me the grace to communicate them in a simple way, uh, the significance of your truth, and Father, that our church would grow in great leaps and bounds as we seek to unfold the deep things of your word. And Father, may we be Christians who give you glory and understand all of your truth so that we may obey it fully. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.